All right, good morning, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 6, that's where we'll be. The building of the first temple. Uh, next Sunday, February 2nd, after a second service, we'll have potluck, uh, prayer also at 7 p.m. after the potluck. And then uh, worship night, February 16th at 6 uh, at the bridge. We're going to be doing a joint worship night with them, their worship team and our worship team. So that'll be the 16th. I'll remind you all the way up until that time, but it should be a good time. I believe that's a, is that a Friday night? It's a Sunday. Okay, Sunday evening. Great. And then uh, just keep in mind, it's far away, September, uh, <laughs> but the Calvary Chapel Association Conference down in St. Joe, we'll have Ken, Ken Ham, and so we'll have sign-up sheets for that and everything to get registered if you're interested in coming down for, for that. All right, 1 Kings chapter 6, the building of the first temple. Um, let me get my notes up and running here. The first temple today... Uh, David had designed and wanted to build, but because he was a different kind of instrument for God, he was an instrument of war, um, God said, no, you're a man of blood, not meaning it was his fault that he was a man of blood, but that he had a different purpose. But your son will be a man of peace, and he'll rule and reign over a peaceful kingdom where everybody's going to be at rest. In other words, all of the countries around you that normally attack you won't during his rule and reign, and he'll be able to build the temple. And so that's what Solomon's doing. He's basically building his dad's temple that he had designed. The second temple that will be built, this one gets destroyed during the Babylonian uh, captivity. Nation of Israel is going to build this temple that we're talking about today. They're going to worship God, kind of, but slowly but surely move away from the Lord until they're doing all the pagan stuff everybody else is doing. And then God is going to take them into captivity and say, you know, you're, not, you're being evicted. It's a temporary eviction. I'm going to bring you back to the land, but just like I evicted the Canaanites when they weren't following me, I'm taking you out just so you understand that it ain't nothing special about you if you're not worshiping me, is the idea. So they repent, and they're going to come back in Ezra, the book of Ezra. Um, three guys take groups back from Babylon. The first one is Zerubbabel. The second one is the priest Ezra. The third one's going to be Nehemiah in that book. Now, you don't need to know all that for today, but Zerubbabel, the first group back, starts to build the temple, but they've got it unwalled around there, and it's not real safe. Ezra comes and tries to institute worship, and he was the weeping guy that would cry because people weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. So then God sends Nehemiah, the guy that would pull people's hair out, who weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, and things changed at that point. So we're starting a hair-pulling ministry here at Calvary. <laughs> The second temple gets built during that book of Ezra, during that second, uh, second one. The third one, since it's been destroyed, Antiochus Epiphanes destroyed that temple, and we'll read today why he destroyed that temple. As Rome came in and took over Jerusalem and sacked the place and burned it to the ground um, by accident, but there was reasons for that to fulfill prophecy. So that temple's been destroyed. Israel to this day doesn't have a temple to worship in. That that uh, prayer wall that they go up to, the wailing wall they call it, that's simply a, a retaining wall for the temple mount to hold the dirt back so that the temple has nothing to do with the temple. It's not a part of the temple at all. It's just the wall that holds back the dirt like a retaining wall so that the temple could have a place and wouldn't erode, basically. But that's as, that's as much as they have left, so that's where the prayers are. Praying for the eventual third building of the temple. Okay, That takes place... Um, later on in Revelation chapter 11, um, it's prophesied about several times. Here's one of the prophecies. Daniel 11:31. 31, 
forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes it desolate, prophesying about this third temple during the great tribulation. The Antichrist sets himself up as God in this third temple. So that's how we know it's going to be built. Um, and says, now worship me instead of the true and living God. And that's when Israel goes, oh, Yve, we've picked the wrong guy kind of thing. Second um, Thessalonians 2, a New Testament prophecy about this same third temple. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and, that man, the, and the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now that's after the temple's destroyed. So we know the third temple. And then the final one, Revelation 11, verses 1 through 2. Then it was given, or then I was given, John, a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months or three and a half years. That's the prophecy about that. So today is the first temple. That was all set up just to understand. It gives you a little background, a little history. Um, uh, probably nothing you can apply to in your life on Monday, but it, it does tell you, it gives you an idea of, of the importance of this temple. Um, so here we go. Verse one, and it came to pass in the, in the uh, 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, was uh, its length was 60 cubits, its width was 20 cubits, uh, its height 30 cubits. The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long, across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house, and he made for the house windows with beveled frames. Now, there's a lot of details here this morning, and so bear with me as we go through these. Probably not as important to us. You'll see different artists' renditions online of what they think it might have looked like, but again, it's just their pictures of what they think based off the dimensions they're given here in this section of Scripture and a few others. Um, He's beginning to build this temple. This gives us a timeline. These are kind of important dates so we understand the 480th year, four years in. Let me give you some background. Um, as many suppose, the reign of Solomon began in 971 BC. It ended in 913 BC. Remember, they go backwards. Okay. Uh, the temple was begun then in 967 BC, and that means that the exodus with Moses took place in 1447 BC, and that's how we could start dating things. We get moments like this, these little uh, waypoints along the way that say, oh, wow, this happened here, and then you go back over here later, oh, this happened here, and we can kind of connect the dots and get a really good timeline of what everything looked like from Adam and Eve all the way up till this point. So these dates that seem like, oh, really, can't we just talk about how I need to be a nice person today? You know, well, you do, be a nice person, sermon over, but... Um, this stuff gives us some background, some meat to hold on to. I don't want to be that kind of Christian, nor do we want to be those kind of Christians that just simply know the five basic stories of the scriptures. If this is true, I want to know it. I want to know all of it, you know? So that's why we're going through this, and that's why we march chapter by chapter through the scriptures to build up this uh, understanding. It reveals things to us. Now, 
this vestibule and these other parts, these different things we're going to talk about, these chambers around the outside. The, the temple, you know, is basically a cube, not a cube. It's a rectangle, you know, about the same height as it is wide and a little bit longer, to, you know, twice, three times longer. Wide. You get the idea, the dimensions, but then they start adding these rooms around the outside, which we don't see uh, anywhere else. But we understand that Solomon isn't just making this up. This is something that David, his dad, gave him, and that's from 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Some of the stories from Kings and Chronicles, they're all going to overlap, and uh, a lot of the same facts, some more facts are given in some places than others, and it kind of, you got to put them all together to get a picture. And uh, of course, I'm like, well, you know, I hate reading, God. Could, could you have not have made that a little more concise for me? Because I don't, I'd not like to read at all. Um, but then it tells me that the glory of God to conceal a matter is the glory of kings to search it out. And so he puts him in different parts. So he says, no, you're going you're gonna to dig a little bit for this stuff. All right, fine, I'll dig. So this is some digging that I did for us this morning. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Oh, that's not the one I want to read. Hold on. 1 Chronicles 28, 11, 12. This talks about the directions and the plans David gave him. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the house thereof and of the treasures thereof and of the upper chamber thereof and of the inner parlors thereof and the palace of the mercy seat and the pattern of all that he had by the spirit and of the courts of the house of the Lord and of all the chambers round about of the treasuries of the house of God and of the treasuries of the dedicated things. So this is from the spirit of God. It's the first time we see this here. That this isn't just some guy's plan to get poor God out of a tent, the tabernacle, and move him into a palace so that we can feel good about the palace we live in, which is kind of how it reads in Kings. But we get from Chronicles here that David says, no, this is by the Spirit. He gave me wisdom on how to build all this stuff. And so we're still building according to God's plan, or David's still building according to God's uh, design. Now, the location we don't have either until we get to, and that's what I was reading before, Second Chronicles 3.1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Moriah, remember that, Mount Moriah. It's the same exact place. Now, Mount Moriah is kind of a funny structure. It's, it's not like Mount Moriah. It's, it's Mount Moriah, like a ridge almost, like a long mountain range. And, and on this same mountain, we've got the offering of Abraham and Isaac taking place. We've got the building of this temple on the same spot that Abraham offered up Isaac, and then later on we have it at the same spot that Jesus Christ is crucified. It's all in the same place. Okay, you think this is a focus point or not? Um, it definitely is. And so they built on top of this uh, Mount Moriah where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. We had that earlier. Okay, a lot of history, a lot of details. Greg Durr loves this stuff though. He just eats this up. So that was all you always send me good texts afterward. Hey, I love that background stuff. So there you go. Verse 5, back in 1 Kings chapter, we'll go faster, I promise. Uh, against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around. Against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide. The middle was six cubits wide. And the third was seven cubits wide for he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. So this is a standalone unit all the way around, um, self-supporting. 
so that the temple wasn't reliant on it and it wasn't reliant on it. And there's a reason for that spiritually. You know, all these things can't be dependent upon one another. You worship God regardless of whether you have the treasure around it or not, basically. And so we see this. Now, um, verse 7. And we alluded to this last week. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone, uh, with stone finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. So it's all prefabbed off-site, and then trucked over or rolled over on giant logs or however they did it back then. All brought over, and then they just placed it. Now I'm sure it wasn't completely silent. But the workmanship was all done before it got there. Now, there's a legend, and the legend seems to be backed up with Scripture. So it's not like, you know, a fake legend. It's just we don't have any documentation of it. It's just verbal. Um, but the legend that the, the, the capstone or the chief cornerstone was set over in, at the beginning, okay? Um, but it was mislabeled, misnumbered. Uh, they weren't sure where to put it. It was too soon for it. Um, and they didn't understand where it went. They thought it was a mistake from the quarry, so they rolled it down the Temple Mount and left it there during the construction process. And they continued to build. Later on, they discovered they're waiting for that last stone. <laughs> you know, it's the one at the bottom of the hill. We can, we, can, we can figure that out. But they call over to the quarry and say, you know, where is it? They said, oh, we already sent that. And they realize, oh, it's that stone. It's the stone which the builders first rejected. And we cast it away. And they bring it up and they place it and it was the chief cornerstone. So here's some scriptures um, that kind of go along with that. It says this in Psalm 118, verse 22. This is the gate that the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Based off that legend, they apply that to Jesus Christ being the one who came but was rejected by the Jews, but later on will be received by the Jews, and they'll understand he wasn't a mistake at all. This was the Lord's doing. It, is a, it was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Also in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8, through 8, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. There it is again. So this legend is, is well, we believe absolutely true. But And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word, so or to which they were also appointed. So there we have those two scriptures that back up that story. And, of course, the whole picture here of the temple being built by stones that are prefabbed over here and brought in and placed silently is all a picture of us. As God tells us that we're living stones being put together, the church, the body of Christ, has nothing to do with the building, has everything to do with the people. And every one of us is being hewn, sanded, chiseled, hammered sometimes. You know, some days are worse than others getting rid of all that extra junk that we don't need in order to fit you into that right place in the kingdom of God, that perfect place, that perfect fit. Some scriptures, 1 John 
uh, about that, about you being fit, about me being fit together here in this world so that when we get there, we're placed perfectly. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He's the chief cornerstone. We're going to be fit together like a stone like he is, and we're going to be all knit together, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This should help us with all of our little trials and tribulations that we go to. And I say little, not because they're small, but compared to the great tribulation, they're very small. But that we should expect these things. Even Peter said that. Don't be surprised when these fiery trials come upon you. This is all part of it. I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior because I was going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? That and beat down, chiseled, and all the flesh removed from your body so that you can be used by him. I think we forget that part of it. All the sin that so easily entangles us has to be removed. All the junk, all the sharp edges. We have to be smoothed up so that when we're next to somebody, we can fit like a glove. We're not all prickly, you know? And so that's being done to us, and I need to understand that. Whatever happens in my life, whatever, and in the moment it isn't fun. Of course it's not. But I have to understand that, is he working on me or isn't he? Do I want him to work on me or don't I? I see, I need to settle that in my heart ahead of time before the tribulation hits. I have to prepare myself for that. Nobody goes into a warfare situation and learns war. You train, you practice, you get prepared for it so that when you go into it, when the fog of war hits, all the noises, the sounds, the smells, all the things that go along with it, the physical fatigue, your training takes over, your understanding of why I'm here. This isn't a surprise to me. I'm not shocked by this. Likewise, as Christians, we understand that. We come to Christ so that he can do that work in us, to change us from the inside out. So when these trials come upon us, we shouldn't be surprised. So we have this beautiful picture here of the temple being built with stones that are quarried off-site and hammered off-site and yet fit together perfectly when they're brought in. Verse 8, the doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the temple and finished it. And he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar and built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high, and they were attached to the temple with cedar beams. So now we're starting to switch materials to wood on the inside. Okay, they're lining it with wood. And then they're going to overlay that with gold, but we'll get there in a minute. So the wood's key to understand. They're starting to line it with the cedar. Imagine the smell in there. That'd been awesome, right? I love a cedar closet or a cedar chest, right? Walking into the temple, nice, you know? So you can almost, you can get it here as we're reading this. All that with the cedar beams. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, so he's done with the temple. He's putting it together, putting the cedar in there. All the rocks are in place. And God begins to show up and talk to him. Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, will not forsake my people Israel. There is absolutely nothing wrong with Solomon building this temple. Let me start there. But God could care less. I will dwell in this beautiful, beautiful house you're building. I love it. 
You already told David that the earth is his footstool, so good luck on me fitting inside this thing. But if you want to build it, build it, right? And I appreciate your heart for me. I'm, I'm reading into this, but God's not saying you shouldn't. God gave him the directions. You want to do this? That's fine. Do this. It's fine. You can build it. But are you really going to build me a house? Because I'm going to build you a house, David. And he has many things to say to him. But nevertheless, thank you. Beautiful. But what's going to keep me dwelling in and occupying this place is this, your heart. I don't mean to point my finger at you. Your heart. I want you guys to do this, he says. Concerning this building, I'm going to talk about the temple now. And he never mentions the temple. He only talks about the attitude of the people. If you walk in my statutes, if you execute my judgments and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel. I want God to dwell with me. Now we know this is before Jesus. We know that Jesus is our righteousness. And God isn't stepping in and out of, the, out of our lives like this. Well, this, today he's obedient, so I can fulfill my word in him. Today he's disobedient, so I'm outside of him. We know that we carry him with us wherever we go. We're painfully aware of what Paul writes when he says, don't you know when you join together with the harlot, you're joining Christ together with her also? And it kills us on the inside, as it should. Why do I do this? Why do I drag God into sin with my sin? You almost wish he'd step out of the temple. Hey, I'm going to go sin. You might want to look the other way or go over here, but he doesn't. He comes with us. And that's where that conviction comes from that says, what are you doing here? God says, I want and I'm concerned with your heart. I'm concerned with you following my commandments, not because I'm egotistical, because I need someone to make me feel big. God's big by himself. He never needed any of us, but because it's good for us as his creation. You're designed to function optimally in those parameters that he set up for us. In obedience to the specs that I've laid out, you're going to have a great life. You step out of those specs, you're going to have a hard time. And so he says, please, I appreciate the building, but just follow me. Just follow me. A couple cross-references here that I want to read to you. Psalm 51, 16 through 18, David writes this after Bathsheba understanding the heart of God. He says in verse 16, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. David knew, well, I could offer up a bunch of sacrifices for my sins that I've just committed, but I know that you'd rather have my repentance. You know, I mean, he wants both back then. He did. But the idea is, David said, it doesn't do any good to have the sacrifice without the repentance. So the most important part is the repentance. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, the prophet Isaiah writing what God's heart was on the matter of sacrifices with an impure heart, with an unrepentant heart. He says this, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I have had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. 
Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. It's the same heart. All those sacrifices are wonderful, but they're meant to show an attitude of repentance, an attitude of understanding that the innocent has to die for the guilty. The innocent animal, I have to pass my sins on to it, that it might die, and I should feel horrible about that. It shouldn't be to the place where I just kill an extra goat this weekend so I can go out and do what I want. No, it's not, it's not an indulgence. It's not a permission slip. And he's not saying, oh, that's fine. That'll cost you two goats if you want to sin that way. And that's how they took it. He says, no, 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 no. Not that. I want you to do good. I want you to seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And you can get rid of all that other junk until you can do that. So important we understand that. He still has the same heart towards us. Yes, we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And yes, we know Bible study after Bible study, and we go chapter by chapter, and we learn all the scriptures, but we need to be doers, absolutely doers of it. That's what he wants to see, repenters growing in knowledge, growing in grace, growing in deeds. I mean, living a life more pure than yesterday is the idea. So verse 14, um, yeah. Yeah, I did all that. Verse 19. And he prepared um, the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, uh, and 20 cubits high, so a cube. Um, and that's the Holy of Holies. He overlaid it with pure gold. So there's that gold coming over the top of that cedar on the inside and overlaid the altar um, of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple was overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. So the idea is it's going to be super bright. I mean, when, light, when they light that um, uh, the, the menorah that's in there, the, the lampstand that's in there with the seven lamps on it, when they light that, I mean, wow. I mean, it's going to shine. It's going to be amazing. And that's the idea. Gold represents deity. This is God's house. This is all God's, you know. Um, so overlaid inside out. And then when you come into Jerusalem on top of Mount Moriah, there's this gold temple. Just wow. You know, you don't want to come into Jerusalem on the wrong time of day. You know, um, I remember living in Omaha and having to travel on Dodge sometimes. And they just had it opposite. They had the wrong way. You go downtown to Dodge, which is east. You know, and you're like this, can't figure out why there all the accidents are happening. Then you leave in the afternoon, five o'clock, you're going west. Oh, you know, you're blind either way you go. Man, when you came to Jerusalem, when you came up to Jerusalem, I mean, it's just this gold temple, just shining, um, a beacon. Um, beautiful, probably not blinding like Dodge Street, probably a bad example, but um, that's the idea behind it, super bright. And so he begins to describe all this. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub was five cubits, 10 cubits from tip to tip. So you got these two wings you know, like this, and then the next one would be over here, and they're touching tip to So they touch the wall, touch the wall, and then touch each other on the inside, these two giant olive wood overlaid with gold cherubim uh, were the same size and shape. 
The height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was the other. Then he set the cherubim cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched one wall and the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. Also, he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and the outer sanctuary, with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel, the doorposts were one-fifth the wall. The two doors uh, were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, overlaid them with gold, and he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. Remember, this is a mock-up or a model of what heaven looks like. So we're getting kind of a glimpse. And in Revelation, we saw the cherubim flying around, holy, holy, holy. And that's kind of the idea behind this. We're showing some of the heavenly creatures, uh, uh, creations doing this. So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. And the two doors were of cypress wood. Um, two panels comprised one folding door, Um, and two panels comprised the other folding door. Then he carved cherubim, palm trees, open flowers on them, and overlaid them with gold, applied evenly on the carved wood. I mean, a lot of work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone uh, and a a row of cedar beams. Okay, there. We made it through a lot of it. 75,000 pounds of gold is the estimated uh, amount used. 75,000 pounds, you know. and of course, it, it was a big deal. It was honoring to God. And, and I think, uh, I, I go back and forth. When I, when I first got saved, you know, you, you always had, a, not always, I always had an attitude of, well, why would you spend that much money on this? Why would you do it? Well, that's because we didn't have any money to spend, you know. And, and we were trying to build walls, you know, kind of thing. And, and they see these other churches building parking lots, which, you know, maybe someday. Um, <laughs> But you think it may as well be gold out there. I mean, it's like, really? That much for concrete? Okay. Um, but as I grow in the Lord, it's, it's, it isn't about that. It really isn't. It's about the hard attitude behind it. Um, I read one story that I used to criticize about uh, a church that bought their trumpet player, and they had a big band uh, uh, at the time, a $15,000 trumpet. And I went, Ugh. What a waste of money. That could have gone to the poor. And that could have and then I'm hearing Judas echo in my head. You know? As this woman breaks the alabaster white flask over Jesus and pours, and he's like, Why wasn't this given to the poor? And Jesus says, No, it's a good thing that she did this. That goes against everything I would have thought, you know. And the people bless this guy with a new trumpet because it's such a blessing to hear that and to bring you into worship. And it wasn't a big deal to them. And they did plenty of missions and gave plenty of money to other people. And they decided that this is going to be honoring to God. And so they did this. I changed my attitude about that. You know, it's between the person and God. It's nothing. I don't know why I inserted myself in there. Right, why don't I step in and judge your trumpet purchase? You know, who asked you? You know, it has nothing to do with you. It's between them and God. What, what Solomon is doing here is I'm trying to reflect my father's heart and his relationship physically. This is what it was like for my dad. It was so important for my dad to worship God in truth and so important for me to honor his memory. This is what I want it to look like. 75,000 pounds of gold, that's probably not enough, but let's do it. You know, There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I've learned, you know, I've learned 
My sacrifice to the Lord, whatever it may be, first of all, needs to be between me and him. Okay, nobody needs to know it. And when I make it public, I guess I do open myself up for criticism like the trumpet situation. Keep it between you and the Lord, and then no one has to worry about it. You know, no one, Then you don't stumble anybody who thinks you shouldn't have done that. Um, but sometimes it gets out, sometimes things happen, and, and, and you get that criticism, but you got to keep that focus on the Lord. Whatever God's encouraging you to do between him and you, do it. He honors that. He loves that. He loves the thought. Now, when it becomes a pride thing, which it's going to be in Israel, it's going to become a pride thing. Let me read you a few scriptures. In Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, this is right after Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left on top of this temple's nothing. And this is the second temple he's talking about, of course, at the time. And his disciples were like, easy, Jesus. You know, don't be talking about, you know, killing, throwing down temples and stuff. This is like, this is everything to us. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what beautiful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one, here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Their perspective, that offering that Solomon and David and their heart to God through this temple did not translate to the next generation. They did not have that same heart towards God. It was about the gold. It was about the value. What do you think our temple's worth compared to that temple Diana? You know, that our temple's nicer than her temple. No, 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 you missed the point entirely. Some of these old churches that were built some of the Gothic churches, some of these other churches of history that we see, one of them just burnt down in, in Paris and, and, and they're trying to rebuild it and all that. And amazing architecture, amazing beauty. And, and, and it probably has changed to this position now, but when it was first built, was it? When they first dedicated these buildings to the Lord, even though he doesn't dwell in a house made with hands, we know that. What was their heart on the matter? I don't know it. So I have to be kind of careful about how I judge these folks and how they built their temples back then and the beauty of them. That doesn't make me have a closer relationship. I have a closer relationship here in our tin shed. And I'm not boasting about that either because we can boast either way. Well, look at us. We're so proud of our tin shed. We don't waste money on granite. Well, I wish I could buy some granite, you know. You got to be careful. We can do that either way. Look how poor I am. Look at the bargain I did here. Okay, so you bargained God. It's the heart. It's the heart. That's all that matters. 75,000 pounds worth of gold. Wow, ooh, amazing. That was so that we could shine, so that we could reflect, so that people of the earth could see that this beautiful God that we worship is here, and he dwells among us, and you can worship him too. There's an outer court for the Gentiles. The world was supposed to be drawn to this beautiful God to worship who's full of grace and mercy and love. Likewise, the buildings we house as a church now all should be that way. A place for the world to come and meet this beautiful, true, and living God that we worship. And he can save them just like he saved us. Finishing up, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of uh, Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its detail and according to all its plans. So, um, he was seven years in building it. it. Took him seven years to build this temple. You know, beautiful. Now I think the next verse should go with it. 
It doesn't, so I'm going to read it anyway. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. Um, the word but there should connect it to that same thought process. So why they put the chapter break there, I don't know. I think the chapter break should be after verse 1, but whatever. Um, and it's just noteworthy. Took him seven years to build this beautiful temple, but 13 years to build his own house. Maybe it was because it was bigger and he needed more and there was more servants' quarters and it was a government building and all that too. Or, and you just kind of hope that's what it was. And, and not a, now that God's got his house, I can build my house, my mansion. You know, I did my part for him, now I can really bless myself. I don't think that's his heart. But it does make a note the word but is inserted there by the writer, but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. And I don't know if that's the beginning of Solomon's decline or not. We'll discover as we go on here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, encouraging us this morning in, in worship. This act, this building of this temple was an act of worship on Solomon's part. It was an act of worship on the nation of Israel. It was all by the Spirit of God. The artisans are involved and they're doing it according to your will and according to the leading of your spirit, according to David's leading, even after, after he's given the instructions. God, help us to be, first of all, open to being used by you in any way, um, to understand that you're building us and making us and hewing us and chiseling us here, and to accept it, to receive it with gladness. I don't know what position you have for me or what place I have, what my final uh, image is going to be when I'm done when you're done with me, but I want to stay on that potter's wheel as it's spinning around, and as you press your thumbs into me and you remove the excess clay. I want to stay on that wheel, but regardless of whether I know what's going to happen or not, I trust the maker. I trust you, God. We trust you, Lord. So do with us what you want to do with us. Make us into who you want us to be. We just ask that we're vessels. Either way, just to carry you wherever we go. Lord, bless these folks as they go today, and we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.